They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now, they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. Power Chip of Wrestling, brought to you and powered by Bombas. Bombas is the greatest athletic sock you will ever own. And please visit our website for a special Bombas code for your buying pleasures. And with that being said, my name is Chad. And as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, Primetime, John Paz. John, how are you? Hey, yo. Doing good. How you doing, buddy? Doing very well, my friend, and uh, tonight we have a very, very interesting show. We're going to go from two ends of the spectrum here. We're going to start off and get down and deep into the psychological end of the professional wrestling business, and then we're going to do that, uh, we're going to do that with Dr. David Reese, who is a very well-renowned and respected, uh, basically, I guess you could say, uh, you know, integral force behind the... Uh, Diggings of professional wrestling as a science. But we're going to go from him right into uh, Brian Kendrick, who needs no introduction. Everybody knows Brian Kendrick. He is such a great uh, professional wrestling entertainer and has done a lot. And John had a great conversation with him. But, John, first let's, let's focus on Dr. David Reese. He's done over 10,000 clinical evaluations for the state of California. He's gone into the professional wrestling world in many different ways, also by having seminars and doing things with guys like Ted DiBiase and J.J. Dillon. But, you know, it was actually after we talked to him that he presented us with a dissertation on the craziness behind the Hulk Hogan controversy. And after talking to a guy and you hear the the interview, you're going to see that uh, this dissertation was quite... uh, quite revealing into the psyche of a professional wrestler and why people say the things that they say. But just overall, what are your thoughts on our talk with Dr. David Reese? I really enjoyed it because, you know, we like to think a little bit further. I know hopefully, you know, some of the fans out there do as well. I mean, we really like to dig a little bit deeper and not just like, oh, I enjoy it. I like to watch. Like, that's the end of it. No, I like to dig deep and obviously do too. We like to really know the the psychology of the business, really get into that and and he you know, he he's so into the psychology not only of professional wrestling and the wrestlers, but he can go even further, like uh he he did a whole thing on ring psychology or he'll talk about storyline psychology and then he'll go from the fans viewpoint of it. And then he'll do the psychology of a face, the psychology of the heels, psychology of the of the turn. I mean it's just Great, great stuff, and I, I really enjoy reading this stuff and, and getting into it because it's so cool for me anyway, being such a big fan, not only looking at it you know, from the outside, but trying to get into it almost from the inside and look at like wow, the psychology of that. It really makes sense of why well, this guy does that or this guy does that, and why, why the fans hate him so much. You know, it's very, it's such interesting stuff from uh, Dr. Reese. 
Yeah, totally. And, you know, he grew up, uh, his father was an amateur boxer, and he was uh, actually, and I thought this was really cool, he was a, uh, um, a hypnotist, his father was. So he's always had kind of an inside to the theatrics of uh, of sport, and he just does a really great job explaining stuff. And we kind of get down and ask him some questions, really getting into the mindset of why things are done the way they are in professional wrestling from the wrestling standpoint and also the fan standpoint. But just like I mentioned briefly, the Hulk Hogan, um, you know, dissertation he sent us was phenomenal and uh, kind of explains a lot, I guess, when you're looking for answers. But um, if you can, I mean, you, you read the whole thing. It's available on our website, uh, tmptfwrestling.com, if you want to take a look. But uh, just what are your thoughts on it really quickly before we throw it to the interview? It's, it's really cool to look a little bit deeper into, like we were kind of saying with the other stuff, but really looking deeper into it. It gives you the different scenarios of why, you know, there, there could be racism or perceived racism or somebody really is racist or or what, but it's it's really good. The one part that you'll really be interested in, because Hogan is a public figure, there's actually a part specifically dedicated to the public figure, and not it doesn't really say, like, should they be racist, should they not be racist? It's almost like, should they be saying racist things because they're a public figure? Or, there's another part of it, was like, was the person being taped without their knowledge? I mean, it's, it's very interesting stuff. You almost want to, like, take a little bit from each category and say, oh, that could be it, or that could be it. So I really like delving deep into that whole scenario, given that you know, the outrage, people took it a little too far. Obviously, WB took it too far. And uh, really interesting, interesting stuff from Dr. Reese about the whole Hogan racism situation. Totally agree. Uh, check it out, please, uh, on our website. All right, we're going to throw it over to Dr. David Reese, and when we come back, we're going to get into John's conversation with Brian Kendrick. So enjoy Dr. David Reese. And joining us on the line tonight is Dr. David Reese. And, of course, Dr. Reese has been a student of professional wrestling since childhood, and Dr. Reese has done extensive work. He's published articles and he's given seminars on the psychology of ring action with a focus on understanding the deeper Psychological significance of ring characters and storylines. Dr. Reese, thank you so much for joining the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. My pleasure to be with you. So basically, uh, I guess the first question would be uh, how did you discover pro wrestling and what made you love it so much to uh, explore it in such great detail? You know, it goes back uh, more time than I'd like to admit, but basically, my father was an amateur wrestler and boxer. And back when I was a kid, evenings that my mother would go out to play cards or go out with the girls, he'd wake me up to watch wrestling on an old black and white Philco TV where we'd see Gorilla Monsoon and Haystacks Calhoun and Antonio Rocker, and that sort of got me hooked. That's awesome. Those are some legendary names. And uh, I guess, um, you know, so your father, uh, what were some of the things that he did? So he was an amateur boxer. And uh, how was he in terms of uh, his amateur career? Uh, you know, I don't know that much about it. Unfortunately, he passed away when I was still a teenager, so I never learned a lot of details. Uh, but I know he was always involved in it. And then he actually became a, st- a hypnotist, never actually worked as a stage hypnotist, but worked with some of the wrestlers and some of the entertainers on using those techniques as part of how to get over with the crowd. And uh, somehow I inherited some of that interest. Now, talking about 
you know, being on a stage and then almost pro wrestling, very similar because you got to get over with the crowd. Do you think that a lot of connections through, you know, through the history of your life with your father and so on has almost led you to a career in writing about the psychology of professional wrestling? Yeah, I mean, it's a sort of strange story because there were a number of years where I didn't follow it, where I got involved in other things. I always loved sports of all sorts of different types uh, and loved playing sports, but with absolutely no talent. Uh, but then uh, just things happened. And I got back involved as a fan. Uh, and then a number, of, probably about 10 years ago, just through some strange uh, connections, I got involved with the industry itself and uh, have been involved since. Now, also, when I was looking through, you know, your career, as I was looking through your stuff, you've been a doctor for over 25 years. Uh, you've had a lot of clinical evaluations. You, you've done all, all these things, and I'm thinking to myself, why wrestling? And then I looked at one of uh, the things that you wrote, and it was actually entitled, Why Wrestling? Can you just talk to us a little bit about that uh, specific piece that you've written? Sure. Boy, that goes back a couple of years. Um, you know, the unique thing about wrestling, as opposed to any other athletic endeavor i mean obviously kayfabe is gone and we you know we know that the outcome is not not really in any doubt uh but on the other hand it, it's very real there's very real competition uh for your spot on the card uh, you know for who's going to make it who isn't going to make it uh but the unique thing is that you are protecting your competitor at the same time that you're causing very real pain uh, that, you know, it may not be a quote-unquote real fight in terms of trying to take the guy's head off like in MMA or in boxing, uh, but on the other hand, there's very real damage being done, sometimes intentionally. I mean, pain is part of it, uh, sometimes by accident, but you have this very unique uh, dynamic where you're both protecting the person you're working with and harming them. Uh, which in some ways is much more complex than other sports um, and also leads to, I think even the fans tie into it on a different basis because you know, you know, it's not like boxing where if someone really gets hurt, you're never going to see them again. You know, this is, and where that may, is the intention of each match. Uh, this is somewhere where you're hoping that the heel comes back next week. Yes, you want to see the crap beat out of him, but on the other hand, you sort of know, now, this is a morality play. It's not really trying to take the guy or woman out. Yeah, that's very, very well said, and that's true. And, and as we're talking about that, I, I keep thinking of head injuries and concussions and the like. And, and uh, there's a wrestler named Corey Graves who just recently uh, had to retire due to head injuries. And then even bigger than him, one of the biggest stars in wrestling today, Daniel Bryan, is out with he just said uh, he was cleared by one doctor, but WWE will not clear him because of concussions. Talk a little right. bit about you know, the head injuries involved and the concussions involved. I know you've, you've done uh, some studies on that. Right. Now, of course, my part is more on a psychiatric basis in terms of the emotional problems that have come about because of head injuries, but that's led me to, to be in, interested in it and learn more of the neurology of it, as well as through my private practice, which deals with a lot of people with non-athletes with injuries and head injuries. Um, you know, particularly in wrestling, obviously, you know, when you're talking about the old chair shots, which now they to some extent done away with chair shots to the head, but there's a lot of every time your head hits the canvas, the canvas is not that forgiving. Now I'm not talking from personal experience; I have no ring experience, 
Uh, but just like in football, where really every lineman is suffering a concussion on every play, uh, you know, every time someone's body slammed, their brain is jiggling around. And it's something that, you know, not too many years ago, we really didn't understand much about. Uh, we're, uh, we're just starting to learn about it now, the physiology of it, you know, some ways of treating it, ways to prevent it. Uh, and, of course, you have one of the biggest groups that's working on that is out of Boston University, which is tied in with uh, Chris Nowinski, who's both a Harvard graduate and an ex-WWE uh, wrestler who left because of head injury. Yeah, that, that, that is so true. You're right. And it, and it's weird because, obviously, it's supposed to be, um, you know, it's not supposed to be real, but, you know, obviously, to a certain extent, it is, and you are getting these injuries and, and, you know, a lot of stuff, and then you throw on top of that, as, as you've written about, the stress of it all. Can you just get into that a little bit of, like, you know, you've got the injuries and then you've got the stress on top of it leading to a lot of, um, you know, a lot, a lot of mental issues for some of these wrestlers? Sure. I mean, you have a lot of different things going on at the same time. First of all, both physiologically and emotionally, everybody's different. You know, there are some people who may have 10, 20, 30 concussions in their career, whether they're wrestler, football, hockey, and not really show any effect. Uh, I've seen people who have severe effects from one injury playing high school soccer, and it may not have even looked like a bad concussion, but it happened. So you have the physiological, just really crapshoot of how much damage it's going to do. On top of it, once you have a head injury, that in itself affects the way you process emotions, the way you process thoughts, the way you react to stress. And you have the stress of the competition. You have the stress of, I don't want to be taken out. You know, my coach or my promoter doesn't want me out. Maybe I should go back. Whereas what we're learning now is the most important thing is to be out and let the brain heal for a while. Um, and then you have the whole issue of medication. You know, these people have very real injuries, and there's good reason for them to be on certain medications. But the same medications that may help in some way can do can cause cognitive problems, can cause emotional problems. And if you get into any overuse or get into mixing it with alcohol, illegal drugs, steroids that we don't know a lot of, you know, they're not as dangerous as some people think, but they're more dangerous than other people think. Uh, you can get to the point of some really dangerous combinations of effects and put all that on top of your basic personality. And is this someone who's suffered trauma in the past? Is this someone who has, you know, in simple language, issues that they're dealing with that are going to trigger off easily, you know, if they're not thinking clearly? Now, in your experiences, do you think that some of the substance abuse issues that may come from a life of being in the ring and taking either an unprotected move or an unprotected chair shot or something of that nature, do you think that that leads to some of the, uh, you know, maybe ill-made decisions by these guys, whether it's concussion-related or not, just uh, the psychological aspect of them wanting to get the adulation uh, from the crowd that kind of drives them to making some of these decisions? Uh, sure. Uh, now, you know, that's not to say it's the only cause. As a matter of fact, I was just talking with uh, one of the retired people, I won't mention any names, uh, a couple of weeks ago who was saying, you know, so many of us who've had substance abuse issues, we were going to have those issues even if we never got into wrestling. 
But on the other hand, you add to it the chronic pain, uh, the demands of being on the road, the stress of just the, what you're doing, and it truly makes it easier as well as at least, you know, it's a little bit less now, but in former years the availability was so high that it made it very easy to go down that path. And it's uh, for some people they can handle it. For some people we don't know why they tolerate it, and other people can meet their breaking point. Uh, brings up one other issue you, you mentioned is that, by and large, you know, people who are in the sport are people who love living on adrenaline. So you take someone and you, you make them sort of dull from a head injury, then you dull their emotions even more with pain medication that they may legitimately need. Then maybe you even add in an antidepressant like Prozac, which helps but dulls them, and you end up with someone who's really feels lousy and is looking for something exciting, which can turn out to be very dangerous. Yeah, definitely. I, I completely agree with you that. Now, how about from a, uh, maybe from a fan's point of view now, and you mentioned before about kayfabe uh, not being uh, anything relevant these days, and the fact that, you know, most of the fans will understand that everything is fixed or put together ahead of time. Uh, what brings the fans still back every, every week, fills up millions of people uh, watching, thousands of people in stadiums? Uh, what is keeping people coming, even though we all know, you know, that we're in on the gag? Yeah. Well, you know, I think the whole idea that we're in on the gag making a big difference in some ways is overrated because, I, I mean, this dates me a bit, but it's still active. You know, none of us thought that Sean Connery was really James Bond, yet we'd still go to the films <laughs> and we still enjoy it. Yeah. You know, when we go to the movies, you know, we don't, for, while we're there, we think it's good acting if we don't recognize who the actor is. But afterwards, we can talk about the acting itself and whether the person played the role. And the thing with, with that makes wrestling different is that you can still lose yourself in it, but you have the repetitive characters and you have the intense connection with the audience, which, you know, may be somewhat similar to live stage, but, you know, you don't, you go to a football game, you go to a basketball game, baseball game, you don't have the player talking to the crowd. You don't have the player interacting with the crowd. Matter of fact, you know, other than the few people who are really the top stars or get into trouble, you're not going to know much about them. Whereas in wrestling, you're going to know whether it's a work or whether it's real. You're knowing about them is part of the whole drama, which makes it much more different and brings people back. And sure, the, the it's not thought to be the, that the it's a real competition, but n neither is James Bond real. <laughs> that's, that's actually a really good point, and uh, I think a lot of people overlook that like simple aspect of it. You know what I mean? Like we're all in on it. We know it's not real, but you know you um, you get invested in these guys, and uh, you know you really you know maybe take a you know a mental break and you know escape reality, if you will, and really think, oh well, what I'm seeing on TV is entertaining. It could be funny, or it just could be you know for the great action that you're seeing on, on you know on the screen. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I had, you know, it really struck me uh, last year at Cauliflower Alley Club. You know, I gave a presentation with Chris Daniels and Kaz. But when they were in the ring, they weren't the guys that I was on the stage with. When, when they were in the ring, I was marking out, and they were their characters. And that's what it's all about. Hmm. 
That is very true. And also you've done seminars with uh, J.J. Dillon and uh, Ted DiBiase. What was it like doing the, the heel seminar with uh, the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase? You know, it was intimidating. <laughs> uh, you know, um, you know, and Ted's old school, so we we had connected beforehand. And I said, "Do you want to talk over what we're going to do?" He said, "No," and that was fun. So we just went for it, and he was great. You know, I I was intimidated because I have no ring experience, and I wouldn't be arrogant enough to say I know anything about what it's like to be in the ring. I was talking about from the fans' point of view. Uh, but he was great. You know, when I would say something theoretically as a fan and how this might connect psychologically, he came up with a story from his experience that matched perfectly. And, uh, you know, at the end of it, he turned to me, and this is in front of an audience of all, you know, industry people. And he said, you know, now I know why I did some of the crazy crap that I did. <laughs> and uh, that really put me over. <laughs> but it, it ended up, uh, I had a great experience. JJ was a little more formal, you know. He's more old school, a little more suspicious of my not having ring experience, but still was great. Treated me well, and uh, you know, we were talking about with, with JJ. We were specifically talking about turns. Uh, with with Ted, it was more specifically about heels. And uh, I mean, I just love those giving the seminars, and I hope people liked it as much as I did. Hmm. What do you think about like you know the psychology of you know, the fans, if you will, through, you know, not just in the ring, but the storyline wise with the face, the heel, and maybe, like you said, having a turn involved. What do you think about the fans' viewpoint? What do you, what gets them, you know, excited for maybe a face or a heel, or what gets them even, you know, maybe fuming over uh, like, a, like a turn? Well, you know, it, there are a lot of different issues that can be tied into, uh, which range everything from, you know, sort of the superficial, well, I'm mad at my boss and it's good seeing someone take it out, you know, on someone, you know, what I'd like to do. Uh, on a, the other far end, it's almost a enactment of childhood trauma and even abuse of I'm hurting you for your own good. Uh, but a lot of it is, is also just dealing with not having to be in a, what we now call politically correct at times, you know, there's some people who gravitate towards the, the faces because they want to be the good guy. There are other guys who just are fans who like identifying with the heels. And then there's the complex situation of, well, this guy may be a nasty son of a bitch and a bully, but he's the bully who has my back, and I like him for that. And that's, you know, I mean, one person who comes to mind with that, like is Randy Orton. There are people who will like him, not because they think he's a nice guy, but if he's the a-hole who has my back, hey, I'm in good shape. Uh, so hmm. you can have a lot of very complex dynamics there, yet at the same time knowing these guys are really friends. Just like last uh, two weeks ago with Comic-Con, uh, where we had um, uh, Owens and uh, uh, Finn on the same panel and afterwards just standing there joking together and no one made anything of it. Hmm. Kayfabe is dead, I, you know, I guess you could yeah. say, in a, in a, you know, in a way. Right. Yet, believe me, when I see them in the ring next time, the thought of, of having talked to them at Comic-Con, to, you know, that's not going to be there. <laughs> <laughs> now, me, per se, as a fan, when I was a kid, obviously, a huge fan, I still am, but a huge fan of uh, Hulk Hogan, he was a huge hero. And then, you know, as I'm getting older, I start liking the heels and I start liking the anti-establishment and 
they're like in, you know, the NWO and like these guys are awesome. They're taking down the system. They're doing whatever they want. And Stone Cold, where I liked him, and he's beating up his boss. You think that a lot of fans almost have a, that general, um, almost like that general psychology where as they get older, they kind of become more rebellious? Yeah, on on one hand, it's, yes, becoming more cynical about life and sort of being able to act out that part. And I think there's another side of respecting that it's more difficult to be a heel, you know, and really... Uh, admiring what these guys do and women uh, to be able to put themselves over that way. Uh, in some ways, it's a tougher job, and uh, you can really admire what they're doing. That is very true. And one uh, um, article you had written that I was really interested in was the uh, intergenerational competition. Because I was actually thinking of, of a few storylines throughout the years where, like, that kind of really applied. If you really um, delve into it, but can you talk a little bit about um, that specific uh, article you wrote? Yeah, you know, that goes back a couple of years, and um, that's when, boy, I'm trying to remember all the details, but I know it, it ended up with a incident uh, where a couple of the young guys uh, t- took out um, a steamboat, and of course it was a work, you know, and afterwards he came up with a stroke. No one knows if that was related or not, but that's a whole different issue. Uh, but it's something you're not going to see. That, I mean, you're not going to see, you know, a 50-year-old basketball player in actual competition with a 20-year-old, you know, in, in the NBA. Uh, whereas you can see that in wrestling, and that brings in the whole fa- – and you have real families, you have fake families. Uh, so it brings in all of that in a much more personal way. Um, for both good and bad, I'm not saying it's all healthy. Some of it may not be. Uh, but it really gets you involved in a family environment and crossing generations, crossing all sorts of lines that doesn't happen in other sports. Yeah, I can really think of that's definitely one of the storylines. And there was one years ago in WCW where they had basically the New Blood, which was a breed of quote-unquote new guys or young guys that wanted to take over the establishment of these old guys who were the quote-unquote millionaires club. And they want right. to get what's theirs. Do you uh, you remember that storyline at all? Uh, you know, vaguely. I, I don't remember all the details, but yeah, I mean that that's been done in a couple different ways. But I do remember that. And yeah, you know, and the interesting thing is how to, from a fan's point of view, is how do you separate out what's real from what isn't there? Because the new guys do want to take the, the positions of the old hmm. guys, and the old guys do want to stay headliner. Yet at the same time, it's a storyline, you know, that that you know isn't quite real. But on the other hand, uh, it is. So uh, it's very interesting. And again, different than, you know, what other sports do you see? That? I mean, sure, we, you know, we saw some of the old boxers come back in their late 40s, or I think George Foreman fought at 50. But that, that was more of a exhibition. It wasn't an ongoing story, and it didn't tie in emotionally the way these things do. Yeah, that's that is definitely true. And, you know, siblings, parents. I mean, you're you're dealing with all of it in the ring. Oh yeah, definitely. And I feel like uh, part of the storyline in wrestling, there is a, some of that quote unquote worked shoot aspect where it is you know it is a work, but then there is that shoot aspect where there's definitely some realism being involved where they want that spot or they're going to take this spot from that specific wrestler. Right. And, you know, as a fan, the matches I like the most are the ones where I'm never quite sure. 
and maybe I'm fooling myself, but where I can watch and never be quite sure. Yes, very true. Now, um, as we wind it down here, before we let you go, I was just curious, because I know you said you've, you follow wrestling for a very, very long time, but do you have a favorite wrestler that you, uh, you know, that you watched over the years? You know, I really can't say that I do because I've seen so many people that I respect their work and especially, you know, the old school people who, you know, would call their own matches that weren't, you know, yeah, the end was scripted, but they really took pride in, and now that I could recognize how they took pride in really working the match, uh, but there's so many of them. And, you know, to me, also some of the, people who we don't think of those are on top, but who put the others on top. Like, just to throw out a name, I always loved Iron Mike Sharp. I mean, because <laughs> he, he could make anyone look good. So, you know, he was fun to watch. And, you know, we don't give enough credit sometimes to those who, who were the so-called jobbers, but really without them, you wouldn't have had the headliners. Yes, that that is a good one. I love uh, the randomness of Iron Mike Sharp because uh, I definitely enjoyed watching him, uh, especially as a kid. Now, just one uh, one more question for you about you know maybe something that was your favorite, but is there something that ties into psychology that really really got you in? Like, is there a storyline that really sucked you in as a fan? You said like, wow, this is the most intriguing, interesting storyline, and really got you you know involved. Uh Yes, but not just one storyline. To, to me, and this is something I've actually talked on clinically to clinical audiences, is how much it really is a depiction of childhood trauma and abuse and the whole uh, idea of I'm hurting you for your own good. And when is that realistic? When is that abuse? Where do you draw the line? Uh, and I th I've seen that in many storylines. Uh, and at times it really hits home. And I think it hits home with the fans sometimes below their awareness. But the idea that I'm hurting you, but this is really for your own good, uh, which at times is so much a factor in really bad abuse, but on the other hand is a very complex issue that we all struggle with because none of us were free of any trauma as a kid. And to me, that's the, that's the biggest hook. Definitely agree, and I think that's one of the reasons we all come back because we want to see what happens next after that uh, that ultimately unfolds. But you know, we usually ask uh, when we have a wrestler on, we ask you know where do they see their career in five years. But I'd like to know where do you see the business in five years, maybe from your standpoint. Uh, you know, it's hard to say because there is a move to go back. Obviously, we can never go back to kayfabe, you know, the way it was. But there is some move to go back to more old school, more actually wrestling. I mean, I've actually some, seen some matches where there have been holds, which is nice. Um, but, you know, look, the bottom line is where it's going to go is where the money is. And uh, that's going to depend on where things go in terms of the networks and the cable and the pay-per-views. And I really wouldn't know what to predict at this point as to what's going to hit and what isn't. Definitely. It's an ever-evolving and always-changing business. But, Dr. Reese, we really appreciate your time. But please, most importantly, tell the listeners where they can find information about you and maybe read up on some of your studies. Sure. Uh, my website's being redone right now, but it's uh, www.dmr, my initials, dynamics is one word, dmrdynamics.com. 
And anyone can feel free to email me at just dmreiss, R-E-I-S-S, at gmail.com. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Reese, we really appreciate your time tonight. It's been a lot of fun, and we would definitely love to have you back down the road and uh, maybe talk a little bit more and get a little deeper into the psychological side of the wrestling business. Any Anytime, I'd love to. Thanks a lot. Have a good weekend. And we're back here on the two-man power trip of wrestling, brought to you by Bombas. And tonight, now we are joined by the Brian Kendrick. John, you had a great conversation with Brian Kendrick, of course, a former World Tag Team Champion, a former WWE Tag Team Champion, a former TNA X Division Champion. But if I could sum up your interview with Brian Kendrick and talking about his time in Ring of Honor... I would guess I would say Dragon Soldier B. What are your thoughts? <laughs> um, I guess that would be a good starting point. Um, it was, uh, he was such an awesome guy. I, I love the interview so much. I guess to be able to talk to him for a pretty good amount of time, too, which was great. Um, that was so funny because I was like, I don't even know if you're going to remember this or not. And, boy, I mean, he remembered every aspect of, the, of that night. Like uh, the the Pope actually that uh, died that day too oddly enough, but the the, the storm in Asbury Park, New Jersey that day, the Pope dying, him wrestling American Dragon in one of the greatest ma- opening matches I've ever seen, but maybe even one of the best live matches I've ever seen. It's just an amazing, amazing match that they had to lead off that show. And he remembered that that was part of a tournament, and he remembered that this tournament was supposedly for. Uh, an American to be sent over to New Japan Pro Wrestling to be a part of the Super Juniors tournament. And he remembered that, um, you know, he lost to Brian Danielson. Then Brian Danielson loses to Rocky Romero, who was actually the new Black Tiger, who ends up losing in the finals to Dragon Soldier B. Now, <laughs> why uh, Kendo Kashin was Dragon Soldier B, I have no idea. Why he won the tournament, I have no idea. First of all, he's not even American, so why would they have a best super juniors Japanese guy go over <laughs> go over and win, and they send him over? And the fact that he didn't even go over and enter the tournament. Rocky Romero as uh, Black Tiger went over and was in the tournament. So the whole thing, it was such a mess, and it was, oh, man, it was such a cluster, and, and we literally should have laughed right there for a good minute there. And I, I was just dying laughing, like thinking about it. I was like, oh, my God, uh, I, I was so happy that he remembered you know, that epic night because me and a buddy of mine who were at the show, Dirty Day, we, we just, we couldn't stop laughing. We're like, all right, Dragon Soldier would be all right. Watch this guy get eliminated. Nope, he goes through the whole tournament and he wins the whole thing. And Brian Danielson doesn't win. And then Rocky Romero, who they're building up as a new Black Tiger, doesn't win, but yet goes on to the tournament anyway. So it was so, so bad, but so funny. And one of those moments where you go to a show and they're like, I'm never going to forget this, ever. Yeah, it's hilarious. It's really the best part of the interview. I hate to say it because you did a great job overall, and there was a lot of great content on here because he's done a lot. Um, you know, started with the career, uh, the training out in the Shawn Michaels Academy, and then through his WWE run and the ROH opponents. I mean, this is this story is might be one of the best uh, told stories in the history of this podcast so far. But uh, also, just quickly, before we do throw it to the interview, Another story that I thought was pretty interesting was something I actually forgot completely, and that was his little run he had with John Cena in uh, 2002. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, 
Brian Kendrick and John Cena facing off in a uh, somewhat, and I guess really forgotten feud, matches, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I, I almost forgot about myself. You know, I wrote myself a note because I, I could have sworn I remembered it. You know, obviously I watched uh, SmackDown or whatever, but I'm like, I'm pretty sure, so i got to ask him about it. But, uh, you know, he, he obviously he remembered it and uh, spoke highly of John Cena and what he thinks of him and stuff. So that was a, a good thing that, um, you know, that kind of sparked my memory. I'm like, oh, yes, that was a cool story. But, of course, um, another awesome story, I feel like he had a million of them, but another great story was with him and Paul London. I don't know if you remember this. I remember on SmackDown when they used to wear the uh, the Kabuki masks? Yes. And like the, he, well, we were saying about how they wore them for, you know, a very extended period of time, and all of a sudden Vince is like, the hell are they doing wearing Kabuki masks? Because I want them off. So, you know, I was basically saying, did Vince not watch SmackDown? Was Vince not paying attention or whatever? So, I mean, he gives a great story about that. And it is kind of funny when you think about it that they were – wearing the Kabuki mask, and all of a sudden, after you know, a pretty long amount of time, Vince is like, oh, I hate this. Why, why are they wearing these masks? So that's just another great little story thrown in there. No, it's awesome. Enjoy, because it's such a, a natural and fun conversation because you guys had a definite uh, chemistry. So I don't want to take away from it anymore. We're going to take this opportunity to thank everybody who is on the show, Dr. David Reese and Brian Kendrick. And we're going to implore everybody to go to the website, tmptofwrestling.com, hit that Bombas link, and as John's going to tell you, it's the greatest sock ever in the history of socks. They do a lot, including one pair bought is one pair for the homeless. But, John, why don't you hit a little two-man power trip of wrestling business and throw it to Byron Kendrick. Yes, sir. Subscribe to us on YouTube. We are forever putting up new clips. Recently, we have a clip of Nikita Koloff talking about the crazy days of the Russians in JCP. Also, some Jim Ross clips, some Jesse Ventura clips. Great clip of Kamala talking about Hulk Hogan and his perceived racism and the racism of Vince McMahon. So check that out. And then, of course, some great clips from Kane talking about the unmasking, uh, Ken Shamrock, and the list goes on and on. Also, please subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Recently, we've been getting a ton of positive feedback, and we love it. But let's keep this train going. Please leave us some more reviews. Check out the feed. You'll see all the old interviews that we've done. It'll be pretty great little characters, so please check it out on iTunes. You can also like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at Wrestling Pal and at Two Man Power Trip. And then, of course, the website is tmptofwrestling.com. That is tmptofwrestling.com. On that website, on the upper left-hand corner, you will see the greatest sock in the history of mankind. It is Bombas. The Bomba sock is literally the most comfortable sock, and you can also use it for athletics as well. It is a great, great sock. And like Chad mentioned, everyone you buy, one does get donated to the homeless, so there is that kickback as well. So please go to the upper left-hand corner of the website and click on that Bombos link. Now, without any further ado, one of the best interviews we've done, without a doubt, without a shadow of a doubt, he was formerly known as Spanky. You also hear a great story about his days in Zero One with Shinya Hashimoto when he was called Leonardo Spanky, which I really, that, that's another <laughs> awesome story you, you're going to love. Um, you'll hear a lot about him in Paul London. You'll hear about uh, him in TNA. you hear about his training with William Regal. And you'll hear all about his training with Shawn Michaels and Rudy Boy Gonzalez. And, of course, 
You'll hear about his history with the American Dragon, Brian Danielson, a.k.a. Daniel Bryan. So now, without any further ado, I send it to the former TNA X Division champion, the former NWA International Junior champion. He's a former World Tag Team champion. Of course, he almost had a year-long run with WWE Tag Team titles. He is the man, folks. He is the Brian Kendrick. Please enjoy. I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for having me. No problem. Now, first things first, I've got to mention this, since you were all over my television lately, whether it be uh, through the network or it be if I'm popping on some Total Divas, but you've been all over the place. What's it been like back in the WWE and, you know, back in, I guess, somewhat in WWE and being on NXT? Oh, hey, um, I mean, those experiences were great. I got to wrestle a couple of buddies in the two matches I had down there, uh, one in Sammy Callahan, the other in Fergal Levitt, guys who I knew before uh, they were signed, and, and guys who I'm both a fan of uh, just as people and as performers. So um, to get asked to get to do these things uh, was a lot of fun. It was it was a treat to get a wrestle with um, such talented young wrestlers. Now, how did you get associated with coming into NXT. I guess it's it's almost not a, you know, a contract. You're not in NXT. You're almost, you know, a freelancer. But how did I get in contact with you to come down to NXT and, you know, have some matches on TV there? Um, I, I think just a lot of luck uh, was part of it. And also because they, they brought me down um, just to, to go to uh, the developmental system since I have a wrestling school. Um, you know, out here in, in Los Angeles, it was a chance for me to get a go down to see how the performance center runs, runs the things for for a week. I get to spend and observe, and uh, and through that week, they they decide to ah, throw him a dark match. Of course, I brought my gear because that's what any good wrestler does, and and <laughs> so uh, yeah, just just so happened that it fell into my lap. Now, obviously, you mentioned uh, wrestling uh, Sammy Hank Callahan, who is now Solomon Crow, and and Verbal Devitt, who's now um, uh, Finn Balor. But also, there was a, a, basically they were saying that you were there almost for a tryout to be a trainer with NXT. Is that true, or is that just, a, you know, just an internet rumor? Um, <clears throat> I mean, I, 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 guess, I guess it's true in a sense, but there was never any of official tryout. It was just to come down and, and, and see how the system works. Um, so really, I, I, for me, the whole point was to go down there and, and gain some knowledge as far as how they run things, the drills they do, so I can prepare my wrestlers in a way that they won't be completely um, caught in off guard if they're lucky enough and work hard enough to someday get an opportunity to uh, perform at the Performance Center at a tryout or something along those lines. Now, being down there and seeing the Performance Center everyone's been giving you rave reviews of saying how great it is and saying how great the NXT product is. Did you feel when you were down there like, like man, this is a, uh, you know, cutting edge or this is a, uh, certainly something different that you haven't seen. And, and were you impressed by it? Oh yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's top notch, you know, um, that got, uh, I don't know, five, six, seven rings. Um, one of them is completely soft, uh, you know, they put pads on top of the boards so guys can try riskier stuff. 
they've got video rooms. They've got trainers on staff to both, you know, help you learn how to lift and trainers in the sense of, of medical repair. Um, they've got ice baths, all sorts of stuff. It's it's as if you were um, going to any major, uh, you know, NFL team, uh, a, a baseball team. It's it's on that level. So um, the facilities are fantastic. From what I've seen you know, on TV and stuff, it just looks great, and I guess that's kind of where it's going. But do you think with NXT, not only having that performance center and obviously Full Sail University where they record most of their shows, but do you think mm-hmm. them going on the road will kill some of the in, you know Ring of Honors and the other independent leagues that are uh, that are out there today? Uh, I don't think it's going to kill it, um, but. I what you see what's happening as you're saying it it might kill Ring of Honor because it has the feel that it's it's the style is more like a Ring of Honor style, um, which I think is I think to me it's genius that they 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 took a style that that the indie style this very high paced high risk high intensity style of match and are seeing how it works in front of a WWE audience and. Um, as far as I could tell, anybody who watches NXT is a repeat viewer. They come back and watch more because they enjoyed it. So I don't know if it's going to hurt Ring of Honor when people learn that, you know, uh, Kevin Owens was a Ring of Honor superstar. So if people have this knowledge, I think it could help Ring of Honor in in a, in a bizarre way. Hmm. That's, that's actually a good point. That's definitely a different way of looking at it. I mean, that's a good point because – not only that, you had Seth Rollins from Ring of Honor, obviously a guy you know all too well, Brian Danielson, a.k.a. Daniel mm-hmm. Bryan from Ring of Honor. So, a lot, you know, CM Punk at one point, obviously, as well. Yeah. But they they do, do have a lot of guys that were from Ring of Honor, you know, and now are gone through the system or are big stars in the WWE. Yeah, yeah. And so if there was – I don't know if, if Ring of Honor um, is allowed to, uh, you know – Express this fact. I don't see how they couldn't because they have all this footage of their previous characters. Um, I think if Ring of Honor markets it as a, a you know, the stars of tomorrow, um, I think it'd be perfectly believable because, like you said, so the all these stars that, that came out of Ring of Honor that move on to this NXT, uh, they're hot stuff, you know. That's definitely, definitely true. And obviously, I wanted to mention not only NXT training with you, I also wanted to mention, as you briefly mentioned before, the Brian Kendrick Professional School of Wrestling that you have, your your training camp and your your school you have. One of the most famous, I guess, trainees, like you could say, uh, is Eva Marie, and we've seen her mm-hmm. and you become a big star on uh, Total Divas. I love to how you're, how you're featured on there. I thought that was great. <laughs> but um, do you enjoy, uh, you know, like basically um, – Training, let's say WWE. I guess I want to almost ask, like, do you enjoy training people that WWE hands you, or would you rather them be like your own student? You know, I I almost don't know how to word that correctly, but they almost. I know what you're saying. I would would say. Yeah, and she's not the only one. They've sent they've sent a a a few women. She's the only one that's been contracted. They've sent hopefuls to me before as well, but but um, having somebody that like her that knows the system. where also will she'll be able to go on and and wrestle and 
what you saw in NXT, that was her first match since going to wrestling school. No dark matches or anything. And hopefully, as proud as I was of it, hopefully people in the next few months will become a big fan of Eva Marie's work. And so the fact that they can uh, come out of my school and go directly to TV, uh, for me on a selfish level, I get more instant gratification. I get to see them uh, come up quicker. Um, at the same time, if I were to see one of my students, you know, a kid who came off the street, never knew anything about wrestling, go on to success, I, I guess I would feel a different type of pride since I knew them when they were wide-eyed. Now, with Eva Marie specifically, how did they go about contacting you, you know, saying, hey, listen, uh, we're sending you her? Because it's weird. Usually they would send her right to NXT, but they sent her to, you know, to you instead. What was, like, mm-hmm. who made the connection with you, and why did they make that connection? Uh, now, the call wasn't, wasn't made from him, but made to me from, from Mr. Regal. Uh, it's because we have a relationship uh, from years past. He, he's uh, one of the one of the men who helped train me, and so um, the office knows our connection. And so he he's the one who dealt with me. Um, but as far as I know, Eva, and this is what she tells me, went to the higher ups and asked to get you know to to learn and train. And they said that there's a school in Los Angeles. This way, she'll be able to still do all her appearances. She she does a bunch of random, you know, appearances here and there, uh, especially in L.A., so this way they could keep it in L.A. Um, I think also it's a way to see if, if I know how to train or not, or at least that's the benefit I gained from it. Definitely, and I guess it does really make sense. Obviously, you're a very experienced wrestler. You've, you've been around, and you, you have a great school over there, and it would be good for her to make all her appearances that they want her to make in L.A. and the connections they want her to make. And, and I guess her agent is, is really big in L.A. and everything else. So it, mm-hmm. it does make sense. But then when, you know, she's got to go down to NXT and wrestle, she even does an homage to you, which I think is pretty cool. She I think she called it the sliced red instead of the sliced bread number two. Yeah, I, I think, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so is it cool for uh, her to almost, uh, you know, as, as she's kind of making it to the big time a little bit here, that she's giving an homage to you? Oh, you better believe I pushed it on her. <laughs> I wanted her to learn it. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. It's not what I suggested as a finish, but I wanted her to learn it for sure. <laughs> That's great. And you mentioned uh, uh, Mr. William Regal, who uh, you trained mm-hmm. under in Memphis. What was your time like under him in Memphis? Because it feels like those guys that were there with him, obviously Brian Danielson being one of them, they learned a lot from him, and they get you know they they say that he's one of the best trainers out there. Obviously, he's not doing much training anymore; he's more of a scout. But what was it like training under William Regal? Oh, it, it, to, okay. So to me, it's it's great. Um, even even still to this day, you know, I could listen to him for hours because. He obsesses over wrestling. Um, so no matter who good, you know, how good he gets, you know, he'll find ways to find holes uh, in it to, to, you know, kick himself because there's this way I could have made it even that much more believable. Um, the thing about him is it's it's uh, detail, detail, detail. You can see the way he grinds his fingers, moves his feet, always a good face. Uh, and so when, for me, when getting to learn from somebody who's uh, 
uh, I guess so so knowledgeable in what I want to have knowledge in. And on top of that, him the way he carries himself, always very nice and patient, and um, to me, it just uh, brings out the best in me. Because if uh, if I can't learn here, then I should just stop wrestling. And of course, obviously, I mean, he Regal's unbelievable. But of course, you had the privilege of training under another all-time great, the Heartbreak Kid himself, Shawn Michaels, down at TWA. What was it like training with? HBK at that time because the guys in your class, if you just look at the list, they all, all basically not all, but most of them went on to become great wrestlers. Hmm. Um, training training with him it was uh, man, it's it's Shawn Michaels. He was he was just went on neck surgery, so this is short after WrestleMania 14. You know, it's yeah, I think it could have been that summer or the following summer. Uh, right after his back surgery, that is. Um, but as far as an American-born wrestler, he's the greatest. Um, I, I, you know, I, I'm not going to argue if you say Ric Flair is better. That's that's fine. But I think Shawn Michaels is, you know, uh, as far as the American style, the total package. So, man, I was, uh, I guess, starstruck, uh, but but really driven. Now, obviously, he was somewhat injured, so a lot of the training uh, fell on to Rudy Boy Gonzalez guy. And, and if you get to talk to him like, like I have in the pit, he's just so knowledgeable. He's got such great stories. But what was it like with Rudy Boy training under him and his learning tree? Rudy's got – he makes he makes training seem simple, right? Um, to get to teach somebody how to, uh, you know, break their fall when taking a hip toss – there's a lot to it, and people get really nervous. And Rudy just had a way of being able to make seem stuff seem so easy that he could just take the fear out of you uh, before the first attempt. Um, something that I didn't even realize at the time, but now coaching and seeing other coaches, he just had a way of of getting people calm and, and sure that they could do it. And besides that, the amount of time, extra time he spent with us is. Uh, is how certainly I got, um, I don't know, as polished as I am. At that time, uh, down there in Texas, it was you, Brian Danielson, Lance Cade, Paul London, Michael Shane. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting a couple of really good guys. But you so uh, that there's a mistake, though. No, but, but, but see, Paul didn't train at Sean's school. Oh, okay, okay. This is a, it's a it's a but but that's he he wound up doing some training with with Rudy Boy though and spent a lot of time with yeah. Rudy, so a lot of the same knowledge is there for sure. Did you foresee all those guys, you know, who were basically together at the point becoming who they were? Because all of you, you know, made your mark in the business for sure, and you all turned out to be uh, great hands, and, you know, in the business. Um, I guess I didn't I didn't consider it, but I, I figured that, you know, I would be seeing uh you know, Brian Danielson, uh you know, Lance Cade and Shooter Salts. So I figured, you know, we were gonna be wrestling together for a while. When you debuted, was your debut match against Brian Danielson? Was it well obviously I guess he was the American Dragon, technically, I guess that's the match at that point. Was that your debut? So I went to a few, I went to a, a wrestling school before that up in uh, 
uh, Dallas area, NWA Southwest. So I'd, I'd wrestled four matches before that, before deciding I want to go and get retrained and try this over again. Um, so if you don't count those, then then yes. If you do count them, then it was my fifth match. <laughs> okay, I gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Now, did you, when you, you know, obviously Daniel Bryan now, huge star in the WWE, he's injured on the shelf, but still huge star, one of the best wrestlers out there, one of their, their biggest guys. Did you foresee when you first met the Bryan Danielson that he'd be the top of the heap at WWE, you know, holding the two titles at WrestleMania 30 and basically being the man at WWE? Did you ever foresee that? No. I mean, not not to to say that. <laughs> I thought he couldn't do it. I just never never gave it much thought, to be honest. Um, you know, for years, <laughs> this was a guy who was considered the best wrestler in the world. Uh, you know, by, by well, I don't know about yourself, but people like yourself, people who, who analyze and talk about wrestling. Um, best wrestler in the world, and, and he was without a contract. Um, so... I knew right away he was awesome. I mean, he worked hard and was he's really, really smart. You know, 1560 SATs or something. Pick stuff up right away, driven. So the world's his oyster, but uh, but I just figured maybe, you know, I, I guess I never considered it since he was just this international superstar instead at the time. It's funny you mention that because uh, I, without a doubt, think he's the greatest wrestler in rings for sure now and that I've seen in a long time. I mean, as far as in-ring technicians, I, I, you barely could find somebody better, maybe like a Bret Hart or, or a Ricky Steamboat or something like uh, who are on his level. But for, God knows, the last 13 years or whatever, I really felt like uh, Daniel Bryan, Bryan Danielson, has been the best wrestler in the world. Mm. You're not alone, obviously. There's lots of people <laughs> who feel that way. Now, getting back to you, obviously – you had a great career in Ring of Honor, and when 2002 rolled around, you were basically one of the forefathers of Ring of Honor, and you were part of the first ever world title match for ROH, and you got Loki, Christopher Daniels, Doug Williams, and yourself. Did you foresee Ring of Honor becoming, you know, kind of what it is today, and and you know, see them really flourishing like they did? Yeah, I mean, I, again, I hadn't hadn't considered where is Ring of Honor going to be in ten years. Um, so I was more concerned about where I was going to be in 10 years, but, um, I knew at the time it was, it was awesome. Um, you know, the very first show, the main event, you got Christopher Daniels, Loki and, and Danielson, uh, in there. And it's, I remember, I remember it from when I saw it live. It was so good. Um, I'm, I'm glad that it's still around and not only that, it, it kind of changed wrestling in a sense, you know, this fantasy style booking, um, just throwing stuff at the wall, giving the best possible matches, um, guaranteeing excitement over storylines. I mean, not to say they don't have them, but yeah, I'm glad it's around because it's a fantastic product and good for wrestling. Speaking of Loki, I briefly mentioned him. You guys seem to Always, either, either whether you're a fight, a wrestling one-on-one or, or you guys are in a tag team, you guys seem to have great chemistry. What is it about Loki that you guys mesh together so well? Um, I think one because we're friends. 
you know, um, we we get along and. And if you know Loki, or you know people that know Loki, there's going to be a lot of people that don't like him, um, and there's probably more that don't like me, you know. But I, I think he's a great guy, and as a as a wrestler, man, I think it's one of the great tragedies in wrestling that he isn't a top guy. He's so good, so exciting, so unique. Um, I think we we also just respect, uh, even though my style is different than his, he knows I take wrestling very serious, always have, and we have that appreciation for each other's appreciation. Yeah, it's weird that he's not in a you know, major company in a major role right now, given that all the other great wrestlers that were in Ring of Honor at that time, you know, like a Daniel Bryan or a Sam Buck, you know, they they got to that level. It's kind of strange. He's he's fallen off, and yet the first ever Ring of Honor champion, et cetera, et cetera. It's kind of strange that he hasn't caught on somewhere, you know, for a long extended period of time. It, if it was up to me, yeah, things would be different. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, I I think he's he's one of the best. One of the matches that you had in Ring of Honor as Spanky. Um, that really hits home with me because I was in Asbury Park in 2005, and it's funny. I was I was watching it on uh, YouTube again, um, and I was looking and I saw somebody put a review on it. It was you at the best of the Super Juniors, the American style, against Brian Danielson. It was an opening match. It's literally, if it's not the greatest opening match I've seen, it's definitely up there as one of them, and it's one of the best live matches that I've seen. Do you remember that match you had that night against uh, Brian Danielson in Asbury Park, New Jersey? I, I, I remember being in Asbury. I remember, in fact, the Pope died earlier that day. I think it was that day. Because uh, if, you know, if you know Ring of Honor and if you know Mary Kate from back in the day, and she she picked us up from the airport and she was in hysterics, and that's what I remember most of all. But... Um, yeah, I remember. I remember. Uh, that's the same night Jamie Noble went out and cut a promo. Um, but but uh, so I'm, I remember the night more than I remember the match. But I remember I remember liking the match. Um, you know, but I remember uh, wish like oh, man, I wish we had another shot of that match. I wasn't. Yeah, I was happy, but not not happy. Happy with it. I absolutely loved it, and uh, the review was funny. The review I was reading was like almost on par with me. I almost thought I wrote it. I'm like, oh my God, this guy's got the same thing that I'm saying. It's just I loved it. It was an awesome match, but it's funny. <laughs> the, night, <laughs> the, the night started out so well, and obviously, like you mentioned with Jamie Noble, it didn't end up so well with who won the the you know the tournament that night. Dragon Soldier B, if I remember correctly. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Kendo, uh, Kendo Kishin, who for some reason was uh, Dragon Soldier B, which made no sense. Yeah, and, and then wins the tournament, which is for a spot for the uh, Super Juniors, and he doesn't compete anyways. I believe it was Rocky Romero as a Black Tiger at the time till then. Yeah, the whole thing, I think, was enough to to just make Gabe want to hang somebody, you know, like that. Yeah. I don't think he was happy. I don't think the fans were happy, but I think the the fact that it was dragon soldier B just, it says it all. <laughs> that was so weird because, yeah, because, yeah. So I figured Danielson would win it because he had a relationship with uh, new Japan at that point. He doesn't mm. win it, which is 
shocking. Then, okay, so Romero was uh, whatever, Black Tiger 4, whatever he was. Mm-hmm. So, okay, he beat Danielson, so he's going to win. And then he doesn't win either, Dragon Soldier beats. Uh, such a cluster that night. Oh, oh. It, it, not only that, it was a Dragon Soldier B who just didn't want to be there. He could tell. <laughs> he just didn't want to be there. <laughs> oh, well, I guess it happens to the best of us. Yeah, I'm glad you remember that because I remember it so fondly. I was like, oh, I really hope he remembers this. You know, it's 10 years ago or so, but <laughs> glad you remember it. I do, I do, I do. <laughs> now, you eventually move on from ROH, and then you you, you have a couple different runs with um, with TNA. Um, one of them was kind of a short run, and another one was a little bit longer. But when you did the second run, I believe it was under the Bischoff-Hogan regime, if I remember correctly. And yep, I yep, they just doing... came in right before I did. Yep. Yes, okay. So was uh, Bischoff and Hogan basically the guys that brought you in? I don't think so. So I uh, think it was all done through Terry Taylor. Uh, because Terry and Terry and I knew each other from from the past, from WWE and stuff. So um, they, yeah, I don't think they knew or cared who I was. Uh, I mean, I'd, I'd met Hogan and he'd always been real pleasant, and uh, but I, I'm certain that Bischoff had never seen my work because uh, we had this discussion later. So I think I was just kind of there. Hmm. What do you mean by he didn't has never seen your work? How, how do you you I guess you talked to him and he said he's never seen well, you wrestle. Is that possible? No. So so it went like this. It was it was and 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 he's a hundred percent right about what 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 he said. You know, I, I went up to him and I approached him. I said I wanted to get some promo time. I want to you know uh, work on character. And he says, yeah, that's all that's all well and good. And a lot of guys they have this character and they. They, uh, you know, they come out dressed up like a, let's say, a cowboy, but then they just wrestle. And uh, I said, well, then obviously you've never seen me wrestle before. And he said, okay, uh, go cut a promo. And that was it, off and running. Hmm. Did you like your experiences with TNA? Yes or no. I mean, yes or no. Uh, frustrated at times like anybody gets and people get frustrated even at the best of times. Um, but, <clears throat> you know, when stuff was going good, I was having a lot of fun. Um, I liked the guys there a lot. I liked the crew. Um, yeah, so so for the most part, I had a, I had a good time. I remember having you having some good matches with Alex Shelley and Austin Aries and a unique pairing you had uh, in a feud with Abyss. Do you remember uh, feuding with him? I do, I do, and I love Abyss. I think he's great. Um, so, yeah, I was excited. To me, I, I know I'm a, a cruiserweight. That's that's my size. Uh, but I prefer wrestling against uh, heavyweights and wrestling at a heavyweight style of a David and Goliath match. Even as a heel, I'd prefer to wrestle a bigger guy because then I can come off as sneakier, you know? Mm, definitely. And in, in your time in TNA, obviously you're saying you wanted more promo time and you wanted to really push that character. How would you almost describe that character? It, I wouldn't say almost like cult leader, but it was, it was very like, you know, there was something there. You were a little crazy. So what I wanted to ultimately get with, but 
get the, the point across was this, right? Um, <clears throat> I was trying to run an experiment to find out if the universe exists or not as, a, as a outside of myself. Um, or if it's nothing but uh, mental, if the whole universe is, is just thought as is proposed in different books or even recent philosophies and stuff like the secret coming out, you know, these types of new age stuff. So I was pitching that idea, the idea that, that through gaining the X vision title, this being my focus and, and accomplishing it, I'm stepping into the, the reality that everything is, is in my head. Uh, so it was the idea of, of more or less, uh, just becoming obsessed with this idea and, and spiraling into craziness. So instead, just became like a goofy character instead and uh, try to make the most of it. It was a very unique and different character. It was actually kind of cool and kind of refreshing to see something different like that, some of the other kind of strange angles that TNA has, has put out, mm. kind of strange characters that they've put out over the years. Yeah, I was, I was happy I got to do it. Uh, I don't think it really got over. I think I would have been better suited playing uh, even a character similar to the V. Brian Kendrick or just going a straight up baby face. But uh, I wanted to try something different and hopefully some people appreciated it. Uh, but uh, if they didn't, I get it. Them trying goofy stuff on a wrestling show, probably not the best idea. <laughs> Do you enjoy being, like you, you've made some recent appearances uh with Ring of Honor, like last year you wrestled Adam Cole, like kind of in a one-off, and Silas Young, which is a great match that I was actually there for in a, in a runoff, you know, one-off. Do you enjoy being almost like a freelancer where you, you know, you're wrestling here or there and you kind of make your own schedule and you're kind of doing your own thing? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Now, in an ideal world, you know, I would also just be able to say, oh, you know, put me on this show in, in three weeks when you guys are running Baltimore. But the the thing is it has to work both ways. You know, uh, they, you know, I have to have a desire, of course, but they have to desire me in turn. So I've been lucky enough to get the odd shots here and there uh, against quality opponents, so that it keeps me happy. Now, I have to mention your WWE run, of course, because you were a World Tag Team Champion, you were a WWE Tag Team Champion for... It was almost a year. I forget the exact amount of days. I feel like it was 330, 340, somewhere in between there. But it was almost a full year that you and Paul London were the WWE Tag Team Champions. Did you actually feel like um, or even think that they would put the titles on you for that long, given their, their you know propensity to push these big guys? Uh, <clears throat> I didn't. I didn't really consider how long we would have it. Um you gotta think like at the at the time, Eminem was a hot act, uh, but but once things shifted from them up to us, and and they weren't you know being being used as a team anymore, um, there wasn't there wasn't much left. I mean, if they wanted to put the Hardys together and really push them, uh, they would have just taken the belts right off of us. But then they would need somebody else for the Hardys to feud with. Um, so, so really, there just wasn't any any hot X that showed up. So, who are they going to put it on? You know, that's kind of how we we 
hold on to him so long. I, I figure. I mean, I think we were putting on quality matches, but uh, but there was nobody they needed to push by putting the belts on. You and Paul Lennon were an awesome team, and I really enjoyed the tag team. And I was actually shocked. Like, oh my God, they're going to hold the tag titles for a year, and like in this day and age, that never happens. And even mm. leading up to, well, you guys winning the titles, Eminem, like you said, they were hot. I think you guys beat them like ten times in a row, whether it be singles matches or tag matches. So it was like, man, it was pretty cool that they were really building you guys up for a long run. And I, I ended up being shocked by it because uh, it seemed very WWE like to give two really good wrestlers who, you know, maybe, maybe they're quote unquote smaller guys or whatever, but you just don't see that in WWE where they give the guys a, a, a year long title reign. Yeah, we're real fortunate. We're real fortunate. Um, and it was, uh, it was a lot of fun while it lasted. Now, one question I was dying to ask you about that run in particular, because I just found it so funny. I feel like it was like an interview with uh, Paul London or something, but basically you guys started wearing kabuki masks, and you guys obviously were doing it for uh, you know for a while. And you would you would come out, you would look at each other with a mask, and take the mask off, and you run to the ring. Mm-hmm. But is, is that story true with Vince McMahon that he was like, what the hell are you guys doing wearing these kabuki masks? Get them off. I, we we <clears throat> we got word down from the boss. We didn't. The, I, now it's not to say Paul didn't get talked to directly by the boss. Uh, but if I remember correctly, and man, who knows? But if I remember correctly, I think it was Johnny who broke it to us. Now I remember, I, I, if I remember correctly, Vince didn't want us to, to team up with a name. We wanted the hooligans. He didn't like it because then we become same one thing too. At least this way, people have to say our names, know our names. Um, but I think that I think the the word came down from Johnny, and uh, yeah, I was devastated because I really like the mask and we've been wearing it for a while. Does that kind of say, I mean, I could be wrong, but does that kind of say that Vince doesn't watch SmackDown? Because obviously you guys were on SmackDown for a long time wearing the Kabuki mask. Well, um, I mean, he was always there when I was there. And in Gorilla, um, meaning not only did he watch it, he watched watched us while it was happening. But if you watch him in Gorilla... um, during entrances is going to be his time to handle any other business, not saying go to the bathroom, but you know, what's coming up next. What's this, what's that, you know, these different things, different information being fed to him, him feeding out to someone else. So he's not watching our entrances or, or if, you know, watch it once or twice to see if he likes it. But once he knows what it is, that's that. So my guess is he saw it 50 times and didn't even notice it because he's got a hundred things going on. But it's funny to think that, yeah, like he, you know, if you talk to somebody and they're wearing a hat and then you, Oh, I just noticed you're wearing a hat. It, 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 it's funny that it lasted that long, but I'm certain that that's, that's why. It's always, yeah, it's always funny. It always like puzzled me. Like now he doesn't like it. It was just a, a weird <laughs> thing, but, uh, it, you know, it's funny to think about it like that. But yeah. the tag team you guys actually got to feud with, which is actually really cool now that you really think about it with your relationship with uh, William Regal, is when Regal was teaming with David Taylor, the squire himself, mm-hmm. 
you guys got a few with them. Was that cool to be able to feud with the, you know, your mentor like that? Oh yeah. And, and, and somebody like David Taylor who comes from, um, like they they wrestled in a, a style that doesn't exist anymore, and the way they would wrestle in Germany, all these camps and stuff. Uh, it's just it's it's different. And when they're coming in to smash it, they're coming in to smash it. So it with them, it always feels um, much more like a fight. And since I started training. Um, you know, the classes or, you know, start training at Sean's and then moving on to Memphis. All of us kids always beat the hell out of each other. So I really like smashing and getting smashed. And then, of course, you guys eventually, when you move back to, I guess you could say the Raw brand, Cade, who's an old, uh, you know, was an old friend of yours in Murdoch, they had a great tag team. You guys had a little bit of a feud with them. Did you enjoy working with them? Oh yeah, yeah. For me, that's a uh, they're a perfect team to wrestle against. You got you got um, you know the both of them are bigger. Um, you know, Cade looks like your your typical old wrestler. You know, he's just this big beefy blonde dude. And then you got uh, Murdoch, who's got such a great look with his just trucker redneck tobacco chewing you know ass whooper. Um, so it's real easy and they, you know, working with them to get a reaction and again, they'll beat the hell out of you. Um, and they'll, they'll take hits back. And actually, uh, you guys would end up losing to Deuce and Domino, who was a more of, I guess, of a comedic kind of gimmick, you know, kind of a, uh, you know, not really known to, uh, I guess they, you know, could wrestle for us in decent matches, but I feel like it was more of a, a, a comedy act a little bit. Yeah, it, um, it was very character-driven, you know, from the entrance on out. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, this is before you and London got together. I guess this is, might have been your – because I know you had several runs with the WWE, but were you doing a gimmick with John Cena? I, I almost remember it being like, like a rapper. Uh, like you were almost shooting with Cena um, during your yeah. first run with the WWE. Yeah, that's correct, yep. When he was still um, wearing, you know, jerseys from the opposing team. So wearing, um, like if he's up there in New York wearing a Cowboys jersey or something like that. So this is when he first started. And so, yeah, uh, came in and uh, did a couple of uh, weeks with him and uh, we went our separate directions. Did you foresee him becoming like the face of the company at that point, or you were just like, oh, it's just you know another another big guy that they're uh, giving a little bit of a push to? No, I mean he's he's great. Um, you asked if he would have, you know, I think he would have been the face of the company for what, 12, 13 years now, or whatever it is. Nobody's done that. I mean Hulk Hogan didn't. Hulk Hogan did, but you know, moved companies and all this stuff. What what Cena's done is is really incredible. Um, so no, I wouldn't have predicted anybody alive would have done that. Hmm. That's a, a fair point. And and then eventually, uh, I guess towards the end of your last run with WWE was the great the Brian Kendrick gimmick. What was like? What were you going for with that gimmick, or, or was that something you pushed? 
that you wanted to do? You know. Yeah, I wanted to do the gimmick. Yeah, it was what I wanted to do. Um, You know, I just wanted to be just a a sleaze bag, essentially. I just wanted to be what I could be when I'm when I'm at my lowest. Um, And uh, just I don't know, smarmy is not the right word, but but basically just a just a a Venice, uh, California, dirty slime ball um that's what i was going for uh yeah i would have i would have enjoyed more more time with the character um but uh not meant to be now actually i guess kind of during that run you were technically the interim world champion at one point during this kind of weird scramble match that they had going on i guess technically it doesn't count but you were the longest reigning like interim champ in that match do you remember that match Oh yeah, I, I remember the match. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. I really enjoyed it. It was a it was a high point for me. I guess. Do you count that as as a as a title reign, or you? you, know, you... No, 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 <laughs> no. I, I, no, I don't count it as a title reign. But I'm um, I'm grateful to have had the match. Technically speaking, interim champ. I'm just throwing it out there. Technically speaking, you were the interim world champion. You know for on that pay-per-view for a brief period of time. That's it. I'll get it on my tombstone. <laughs> now, what led to the, the the release there, you know, in WWE? I never got a direct answer other than it's, it's not working out. But, um, you know, reading between the lines, I was a, I was a bad employee. Um, and I understand, uh, you know, I, 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 I would always show up on time. I would always, um, you know, work my matches and, 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 and work hard during them. But if they want to put you in a position, like for example, I was explaining earlier how many appearances Eva has. Um, you know how many John Cena has? 500 a year. These people have to be good, pleasant people, at least be able to turn it on. Um, for me, it was something that I wasn't the best at. Um, you know, be it, sometimes I was cranky and I let it show. Sometimes I just it was self-destructive. Um, but that's that's what it boiled down to was me being more trouble than I was worth. Interesting. Uh, kind of a well, you know, well said there. And as a, we wind it down a little bit here, I had to mention one thing because uh, this is years ago. I actually this is when. Uh, I guess World One was touring when you were part of Zero One. Hmm. Uh, I met I met you backstage. Uh, you were very friendly. Uh, I mean, you, you, obviously you won't remember that, but you were very friendly. It's very cool. But it, what really stuck out to me about you, and I couldn't stop laughing. Me and my friend kept laughing was the fact that they called you Leonardo Spanky because they felt like you looked like Leonardo DiCaprio. And yes, is that for the is, is that true that Hashimoto basically said, oh, you look like Leonardo DiCaprio, and boom, you're Leonardo Spanky? That was it. I got to Japan the, for the first time, and, you know, Zero One was about a year after they started, so they are you know, fairly hot still, so they had some magazine reporters there for the Gaijin when they land, and they asked me questions about uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, and I had no idea, and the referee there picking us up was snickering, or I think maybe Ryoji Sai, who was a young boy at the time, 
snickering and then told me, yeah, uh, Hashimoto thinks you look like Leonardo DiCaprio. You're going to be Leonardo Spanky. Okay, there you go. Uh, and um, it, it got me brought back over and over again, so I was real happy to have it, but it was uh, only in Japan, I suppose. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I remember you specifically, you know, you get on the rope, as like keep getting on the, the part of the boat, whatever the hell you call that part of the yep, boat. Yep, and yep. you're saying, I'm the king of the world. Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but did you enjoy working in Japan? Because obviously you worked uh, for New Japan as well. I mean, you were part of the uh, Super Juniors, the uh, Super Juniors uh, tag tournament with the low cable point. You're actually a member of the Elite Chaos group. Uh, with all those awesome guys like Okada and Nakamura and uh, Ishii and and all those other awesome guys, but do you enjoy working in Japan? Yeah, I think that the the quality of wrestling there is uh, spectacular. I love it. I just love the style. Um, I assign my students homework. Um, you know, and tonight's homework for them was to watch Otani as a heavyweight. Um, I'm a, I'm a I'm a big fan of the Japanese style and uh, just Japan in general. It's very different, but I enjoy it. Now, Japan is awesome, and there's obviously so many awesome matches, and you've had so many awesome matches. Obviously, we talked a little bit about your great matches with Brian Danielson and Loki and some matches you've had in, in TNA as well. But do you have a favorite match or maybe matches that you've had all time? It's, it's, it's hard. You know, I don't really... Uh, but when asked, I always resort to a couple being, um, you know, for for WWE tag matches would would be you know Paul and I against Casey James and Idol Stevens from some random pay per view. I'll say No Way Out. Could be Judgment Day. Could be Over <laughs> the Edge. Could be who knows what. But one of those, you know, not a Summer Slam or anything like that. And uh, and then. Um, Another time teaming with with uh, um, uh, Kaz Hayashi in zero one. Uh, another tag match against Takaiwa and Ishi. Uh, when back when back when Ishi was a, a junior in zero one teaming, and uh, it's uh, I landed funny on my neck. It's been funny ever since, but uh, I'm glad it happened in that match, if any. So. Now, it's great because you just mentioned uh, you know, a couple underrated guys, especially uh, Casey James and Idol Stevens, who I feel like uh, – Idol Stevens, obviously, is Damian Sandow now, but I feel like they're uh, a little bit of a forgotten team, so definitely you know, they're great. But do you have a favorite opponent that you have, a guy you just clicked with? Would it, would it be um, Brian Danielson? Yeah, it, it, the, <clears throat> I guess it would have to be him, but it's been so long. You know, but we wrestled so many times. Um, so just the history. Uh, you know, wrestling with him and Loki are, are um, you know, if I know I'm, I'm going to wrestle Loki or, or Danielson, they're going to want to put on the best possible match we can put on. And uh, I get real excited about that. Um, so, yeah, those, those would be my, my two favorites. Something that I'm very curious about, especially with you, is there a dream match, somebody out there that you've never been able to wrestle that you wanted to always wrestle? Shawn Michaels. 
even in your uh, training, you guys never like got to you know lock them up and wrestle. I've got to lock up, but but that's it. Yeah, never had a match with them, so uh, that would have to be it. Now, obviously, um, you're you're on you're on Total Divas. You're uh, you know here and there on NXT. You're you're training your Maria and everything, but I like to call it the DDP question since he prefaced it to us, you know, in a in a past interview, but. Where do you see yourself in five years? I see myself in Venice, California. Um, <laughs> don't I don't know if I'll be a parent or not. It's all out in the ether. But um, hopefully I'll be running a successful wrestling school, running successful wrestling shows, and the, this... Um, big rubber costume kid show that I'm trying to run will have been in the can years past and off to my next goofy project. Nice. I love it. Now, you're definitely one of the most underrated wrestlers. If anybody out there, you got to check out some, some old school spanky matches, some Brian Kendrick matches, especially when he's teaming with uh, Paul London to the V. But if anybody wants to, you know, find you, anybody wants to go to your wrestling school, anybody wants to see where you are on the interwebs, where can they find the Brian Kendrick? Oh, boy. Um, I, I guess uh, through a Google. Um, I've, got a, I've got a wrestling school website, uh, bkschoolpw.com or briankendrick.net. I feel like it's the same thing. Um my wife runs my Twitter or Instagram, which would just be Mr. Brian Kendrick. And uh, I guess that's it. Yeah. And where is the wrestling school located? I know it's in California, but where specifically? Yeah, it's it's in Bell Gardens, Southgate, which means nothing to anybody who doesn't live out there. Eight miles from downtown, 15 miles from the coast. Okay, and I... Uh... Suggest anybody out there that's you know in the California area, or maybe even not, if you want to become a professional wrestler, definitely hit up the Brian Kendrick School. And Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. I mean, it's been a blast. Uh, we really appreciate your time. You Thanks a lot for having me. I, I appreciate the conversation.